We choose to go to the moon because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail on the greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. All right. Welcome to the new Space Vision Podcast. In this podcast series, we aim to tell the stories behind the emerging new space ecosystem in Germany, Europe and the world. You can find previous and future podcasts on our iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud channels. Simply search for New Space Vision. New exciting interviews, blogs, meetup events, conferences, the newsletter or other projects can be found on our website newspacevision.com so make sure to subscribe hello everyone and welcome to our next episode of our new space vision podcast today with a very special guest jeffrey member ceo of nanorex he has an incredible personal story and definitely nanorex is maybe the first space unicorn which we are interviewing today so i'm really really excited for this podcast since jeff not only is ceo of nanorex the first company in the world which has developed and marketed a facility on board of the international space station he also leased the mir station work for energia the russian space corporation and really has played a huge role in making space more accessible so first of all thank you very much for joining the podcast hey yeah thank you for having me it's uh, great to be here and and looking forward to the question i already said a few words about really your interesting uh, past and and your way into the space industry when i researched you i found out that in the past you didn't start as a space engineer you had a science background i think uh, in, in neuroscience but you started off as a as a as a journalist correct how did you uh, went from being a journalist to being the ceo of one of new space most successful companies well first off i'll say it wasn't a straight line that's for sure uh, although maybe it doesn't seem like a straight line and maybe it is um, so i've been involved in space for a very long time several decades and when i started out most of the people involved were either military former military, government, former government. I'd walk into a room, I'd be the only person without a crew cut, okay? <laughs> and it was, just, it, it was just a different feeling. And uh, uh, when I got out of, uh, got my master's, uh, and you're right, it was in neuroscience. I wanted to do something different. I did a film magazine. And after the film magazine, I decided I wanted to write about something, get involved in something new. And that was the frontier of space. So I began writing for all the publications, the New York Times uh, and other business publications on the whole idea of the space shuttle program. And you asked, how do you get from being a writer to CEO of a space company? Well, a uh, tip, tip if you're starting out is being a writer is a great way to meet people. And one of the things I learned was not only did I meet the early entrepreneurs, this was really space 1.0 in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, but The second thing is that I learned that NASA at that time was a competitor. And everything I knew about NASA was kind of wrong. I mean, if you had a good idea, uh, NASA would try and grab it from you. Uh, NASA wanted reliance on the uh, space shuttle program. They didn't want robust trans space transportation and different vehicles. Uh, they were completely obsessed on having their own space station, which they called Freedom. Um, and so it was a completely different time. 
So I, I wrote for everybody. I got known as that. And then, um, long story, and I won't go into it here, but I met the Russians. And man, it was different. I mean, the Russians were like commercial. They were trying to commercialize the Russian space station Mir. It was the time, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and they were privatizing everything. And they were approaching people and saying, do you want a contract? Do you want to work on the, on the, on the human rated space station? And it just blew me away. It was unbelievable. The, you know, the IP stayed with you. There were set prices. Uh, and so I started, uh, I helped bring about the first uh, uh, business between uh, the Mir space station, the Russians and Americans. It was a, a company uh, doing pharmaceutical work in Boston. And uh, it just sort of took off from there. But I'll tell you that in the 90s, uh, I used to say all the time that if you want to work uh, with the capitalists in space, the pro-business, you'd have to work with the Russians. And if you wanted to work with the socialists, you had to work with NASA. And so that was the kind of the experience in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, and that's really how I got on the path from uh, writing, meeting all the entrepreneurs, and then slowly getting involved into the business, which was the business of space stations. So. So uh, th this sounds incredible. So you talk to the, to, to the people, uh, you talk to Russian people, and uh, then they asked you, hey, do you want to support us? Uh, we, we want to commercialize the Mir station. Uh, so did it happen like this? Yeah, not quite. I mean, but uh, what happened was uh, I went over, uh, as I said, I brought over the first contract uh, really between uh, the, the first commercial contract between Americans and Russians. And the American company invited me to the launch. And this was like 1990 or something. I, I forget now, uh, <laughs> 89 to 90. And uh, at the launch, the American company very kindly said, uh, this is Jeff Manber. He helped make this deal possible. And, uh, and so the Russians, it was Energia. It was a secret organization at that time, RKK Energia. Uh, they're today the prime contractor on the International Space Station. They're the great organization that did Yuri Gagarin. Uh, they did Sputnik. Uh, and so a great, proud organization. And they came to me and said, would you represent us in the United States? And I, and I asked the, the, the Bush people, and they agreed. And so I became, to my knowledge, I'm the only American to ever work for the Russian uh, human space program. And uh, I worked for Energia, and uh, we didn't know it, but the job became uh, how to, uh, we broke, you know, we, we uh, had negotiations with Boeing and realized that uh, uh, it was not right to do uh, space station freedom. And, uh, and Energy and Boeing proposed what became the International uh, uh, Space Station uh, program. And so I was there for the early days of that. And it was uh, quite a ride to be sitting on the Russian side uh, opposite the Americans. And when you get a chance to do that, when you get a chance to sit opposite your own people, You learn a lot about your own country. You learn a lot about yourself. And in the early 90s and mid 90s, it wasn't good. Uh, at that time, uh, the Americans were very bureaucratic. Uh, they were very naive on international relations. Uh, and um, it was very um, disquieting, uh, depressing for me to watch. Uh, to watch. Um, but uh, I stayed with the Russians for nine years and uh and um it was a wonderful experience i learned uh, uh everything possible about how you operate a space station and energia really taught me uh on the mere space station 
Uh, how do you plan budgets through solar cycles? Because, you know, the worse the solar flare activity, the more you have to send cargo ships to boost up the station. All sorts of, of weird things you don't think of. We did the first commercials. We did the, the first uh, paying customers. I was there and the agreements between the Europeans and the, and the Russians that the Europeans said uh, agreed they would no longer send cosmonauts or astronauts to the Mir space station diplomatically. It would be commercially. They would pay. And so it was a fascinating time, the mid-90s, uh, when commercialization really took root. And we uh, also hear that you had actually more than $100 million in contract for the Mir station, which then got deorbited. So how yeah, disappointed did you feel and, and how did you overcome well, that, That's a different story. So the first part, <laughs> the first story was I worked for Energia for nine years and worked on the Mir space station, learned a great deal. And then I left. Uh, and uh, I left uh, and I spent a year or two working in the States. And then uh, a gentleman named Walt Anderson came up and said, I want to buy the Mir. And this is when the Americans were forcing the Russians to deorbit the Mir space station. And I don't know how much we want to get into it, how much detail, but the Americans had difficulty understanding that the Mir space station had been privatized. And what that means, it had been turned over like so much in the transition from the Soviet system. Uh, the prime minister of Russia had transferred the space station to Energia. And Energia was now a private company, and they owned the Mir. And NASA kept making agreements with the brand new Russian space agency. It was at that point about a dozen people. And, uh, and they kept making agreements, but they were not enforceable because the Russian space agency didn't own the Mir space station. Okay, Energia did. And, and, uh, and so uh, finally the Americans were putting pressure on the Russian government you will deorbit the Mir to make way for the International Space Station. And, and Energia was desperate. They didn't want to deorbit it. And it was the people were making fun of it internationally. It was old. And um, a man I knew approached and said, I want to buy it. Long story. I said, you can't buy it, but they'll probably lease it. And I went back over to Russia and I found myself working in Russia again. And this was 99. Uh, and uh, we signed a uh, agreement, Mircorp. I was CEO of a company called Dutch company called Mircorp, and uh, and uh, we leased the Russian space station for about two years. We did the first, uh, I, th I think, and hope soon it's going to end. But the only time we had a commercial crew, a commercial uh, human being, you know, human beings went to space totally with uh, private funds, and uh, it was two cosmonauts, and they stayed on the Mir for about seventy days. Uh, we signed Dennis Tito uh, to go to the Mir uh, before he ended up signing with Space Adventures to go to the ISS. We signed with Mark Burnett to do an American game show. Uh, he's the guy who does Survivor, if you know that. Uh, and uh, we had, a, yeah, we had about 200 million in backlog uh, and the Americans just forced the Mir down. It was geopolitical. And, uh, and so it was, um, it was very sad but I'm very proud of what we did at Mircorp. During that time, I spoke to Elon Musk. I, I spoke to Richard Branson. Uh, everybody was fascinated. Could a small entrepreneurial company work with space agencies? Could a small entrepreneurial company take a space station and change the business model? Instead of being a government platform, we were talking about doing game shows. And was it doable? 
It was a, a time of incredible political pressure. Uh, the Americans, uh, NASA was desperate to shut us down. The European Space Agency was forced to go along with the Americans and applied a lot of pressure. Uh, I wrote a book about it called Selling Peace that talks about what it was like during that time. And, you know, at one point in Holland, in, uh, in uh, Amsterdam, the, we opened a bank account and the European government made sure the bank account was closed. I mean, it's just a, it was just a very difficult time. Uh, and it was an effort by the American government to make sure there was no competition uh, to the International Space Station. So it was a sad moment when it came down. Uh, the, you know, but I'll say uh, we learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot about international business, international space, uh, about space stations. And I also learned a lot about America. In America, when the mirror came down, people were worried about my future career. But in a few years, the NASA folks started coming up to me and saying, you know, you may have been right working with the Russians there. Could you know, could you come back and help us on ISS? So life is funny. Yeah, incredible. Really incredible story. Um, just maybe a short, short follow up question to this as a business or as founders ourselves. I was wondering, like, how have you, how have you been able, like, because especially like the potential customers or the signed up customers of the Mir space station, uh, were coming from such a wide field of, of occupations. How have you conducted business development? Did you just go out and wrote everyone, hey, would you be interested in doing something on, on the space station? Or how did this came along? You asked a question that's followed me my whole career. Uh, when I started working with NanoRacks, um, NASA folks said to me, we have a question. Uh, we think we built the technological marvel of the 20th century, the International Space Station, and we can't get anybody to use it. How do you get customers, Jeff? And so, you know, I, I looked at this NASA official and said, when you bought your most recent car, did you ask them how did you get customers? <laughs> you know, getting customers, or to put it in a more business way, getting people to give you money to do a service in space that used to be the domain of the government is a skill and it's an art, okay? <laughs> it, 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 there's no magic formula. And I'll give you the examples with Mircorp and today with Nanorax. With Mircorp, uh, you know, you guys, you know, too young to remember, but it was the number one story, really. It was front page in the European newspapers and, and the American newspapers on television. Uh, this little band of entrepreneurs from around the world working with their Russian colleagues to keep the uh, only space station uh, in orbit. And, uh, and so we had a lot of publicity and I could meet with the Murdoch brothers, you know, uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, sons. Uh, we met with them about doing a program where the cosmonauts would do uh, uh, live broadcasts when there was violent weather. I mean, the door would just open and, and we, we sat there and said, what can we do in the shorter term to keep the space station in orbit? And, and we were fortunate. We went with uh, uh, television shows. We went with tourism. We also had researchers. I was very proud of the research. We did about a, oh gosh, I haven't spoken about it in a while. We did about 150 science projects. Uh, and so during our 70-day mission, we called MirCorp One. So jumping to Nanoracks, at Nanoracks today, we're the largest commercial user of the International Space Station. We have customers in over 30 nations. 
Um, and it's very difficult. We have competition. We have protectionism. You know, where Europeans might say, boy, we'd like to work with you, but oh, no, we got to, you know, the Germans say, oh, you, you, we worked with you three years ago, but now we have to work with the Germans. So it's a very, very tough market. Um, but with folk, we focus at Nanoracks on customer service. Don't watch in the beginning how many customers you get. Watch how many customers you keep. Yeah. Okay, so so we still have customers who have been with us for nine years. We lose customers, we've lost customers, and some have come back. And you focus on customer service. And the way I, I did it, I've done it at Nanorax is if a customer is not happy, how do we make it right? And we judge it by the repeat business that we're getting. And sometimes we let a customer go because of competition and we just don't want to race to the bottom on prices or something. But in general, if you stay focused on the customer you get, you're honest with the potential customer, uh, they will stay with you. Okay. But that's a great, great advice. I think very applicable to, in fact, every business. But you mentioned Nanorex already multiple times. So tell us, how do you came uh, to Nanorex and, and what's the real business model of Nanorex? So uh, after uh, Mircorp, I took some time off and, uh, and people began emailing me and saying, hey, would you come back to the States? And uh, uh, I was in Italy at the time and, uh, and London and England. And uh, people were like, would you come back to the States and work on this project? Where they were all huge projects, all that needed three, four, five hundred million dollars. And then these folks wrote to me and said, we have this uh, simple idea of taking a standardized uh, research box in the cube uh, sat form function, which remember was also brand new at that time. And we're going to develop a platform uh, and the boxes are 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters and you plug it in. And we think that we can democratize space access by having uh, folks do research in st with standardized hardware. And I, I thought about it and, and, and they had given up. They said, we can't get NASA interested. And so I, I sat down with NASA and said, would you work with me on this concept? And I remember their answer. Their answer was, we watched what you did on the Mir space station. No one's really using the space station now. Uh, if you could get customers, you know, that would be wonderful. So I agreed to take over this effort. There was just one person or two. And, um, and one of the first things I did was I stopped the patent. Uh, the founder, uh, Dave Anderman, had uh, followed on a, what we called a nanolab. And I stopped the patent. And why did I stop the patent? Because I realized that I want the, what we needed was that ecosystem that you mentioned. And, and I wanted to see if others could come up with innovations. And I enjoy whenever I'm on a panel with Ice Cube to remind them that uh, I could have stopped it and patented it, and I didn't. Uh, and I didn't because I wanted an Ice Cube. I wanted a Space Tango to come along and maybe come up with innovations in basic hardware. I wanted a vibrant market. And, and first off, I'll, I'll say it really hasn't happened. Uh, the market, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, but the market for 
internal pressurized, we call it research on the space station has not taken off the way I had hoped. Um, but that's the way we got started. And we started uh, uh, getting customers from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, from the very beginning, we were able to get payloads on the space station in uh, no more than nine months. And it took NASA, especially at that time, three years. Uh, and people began coming. And, and the, it's hard to realize today how unique, how disruptive Nanorax was. We, as you said, we were the first company in the world to own and market our own hardware on the space station. We were the first company to charge, to charge. We were the money. We were the first company to have transparency. Uh, and, and people at NASA were like, nobody will pay you for this. They can come to us for free. And I was like, good luck. You know, have you ever called ESA's front, you know, phone number or NASA's front <laughs> phone number or JAXA's front and say, hello, I want to send something to the space station. Good luck. And so we introduced the concept of uh, private ownership. We introduced the concept of working hand in hand. We call it in the business, the public private partnership, where we invested our money and NASA and the American taxpayer gave us uh, resources, space station resources. And it was utterly fascinating in the beginning. 10 years ago, the Americans, to my pride, because remember, I worked with the Russians. I worked for the Russians in the 90s. And, and I found out a decade later uh, that the, the, uh, the Americans were now becoming Americans. They were like, hey, you know, we should have private sector in space. Hey, we should, uh, we should contribute taxpayer hardware. Uh, we should work with companies. We should build up private companies. Whereas 10 years ago, the Japanese were different and the Europeans were different. They were saying uh, each one different and they approach it differently. And that's one of the cool things about the international uh, space marketplace that's developed and is developing is I don't want it to develop. You know, I don't go to Europe and say, OK, this is what you got to do because the Americans do this. But the European ecosystem is developing in a European way, as you have with the auto industry and aviation and other mature industries. And the same is true in Japan uh, and the same is true in America and unfortunately in Russia because now Russia is back to being centralized and Energia is today under the domain of the government space agency, which just breaks my heart. Um, but it's, you know, what's best, it's the way Russians do things. So um, Nanorax got going because I went into NASA and said, I don't want your money, uh, but I want the right to market the hardware and I've built it up customer by customer. Uh, so uh, I want to follow up here because uh, actually what you said is that Uh, did you ever call those uh, um, hotlines where you can uh, talk to NASA? Actually, Sven and I um, had some, uh, so I see some um, parallels here to the uh, Earth observation market a few years ago when uh, Sven and I really, uh, I mean, we thought it's super simple. Let's just buy some, some data from Airbus, for example, from their satellites. And it was horrible. It was horrible. This is also changing right now. And um, so would you say that um, uh, like this customer centricity is your special sauce? Yeah, I mean, we, we um, early on, about seven years ago, we had a customer new to the space business. And this happens to us about every two or three, two years. We have a customer new to the space business and uh, they ask us questions. And like, for example, we've deployed over 200, close to 300 satellites now, CubeSats from the station. 
we deployed the first satellites of Planet and uh, and uh, Gom, Gom Space and and uh, and Spire and uh, and you know we had somebody come along and uh, they couldn't they, they they couldn't believe the requirements we had for the batteries and the, and other things and they got so mad they threatened to leave us and demanded that they talk to NASA. I said okay, and by the time they had spent thirty minutes talking to NASA, they were like oh. Nanoracks, you're an angel. <laughs> the problem is the government. And NASA was honest. The NASA gentleman said, it's not Nanoracks, it's us. Okay, so governments are not meant. Now here I'm speaking, I'm speaking like an American, okay? That's all I can speak as, okay? Uh, but governments are not meant to market things. They don't do that well, okay? And, and you know, I always say that if, if NASA ran the aviation industry, and this is a bad uh, analogy today when, uh, you, know, l you know, not that many people are flying. But, it, you know, I, I use the analogy that if uh, NASA ran the aviation industry, there'd be one flight, uh, let's say, uh, a week between New York and Frankfurt. The ticket would be 12,000 euros. You'd have to uh, take psychological courses about being in a metal can for six hours. You'd have to swim in case the plane landed in the Atlantic Ocean. And very few people would go. And along would come someone, an entrepreneur, maybe like me, and say, why don't you give it to the private sector and we can have 30 flights a week? And everybody would laugh, say, no, they would never be. And then you say, but, and you don't need swimming lessons. No. I mean, that's the government. The government, you know, is run by committees and the government has to anticipate every negative development. Instead of uh, instead of empowering people, they have to uh, to make sure that everything's been taken care of, and and so uh, governments do not market. And the most exciting thing that's happened in my career is that space has become more and more like any other business, where the private sector, whether it's in Germany or or uh, the Abu Dhabi or wherever it is, uh, a company comes in, has an idea, gets investment. And more and more is doing the marketing, whether it's to a government or a school or to a research facility or whatever. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. We were wondering, you mentioned companies such as uh, Spire. One of their founders was also a guest on our podcast. But you mentioned that you launched some of their CubeSats directly from the space station. And obviously, that's not the only way to launch a satellite into orbit. So there's competition from direct launches from companies like SpaceX or Rocket Labs or so on. What's the advantage of launching CubeSat from the ISS via Nanorex? And also, where do you see yourself positioned versus the competition you mentioned right you encourage such a ecosystem to flourish and and you mentioned already space tango uh, ice cube there's also Bart the bartolomeo's platform from airbus or yuri a company here from germany two huge important questions so first let me quickly tell the story um when we got going we realized that the japanese on the space station jaxa had developed a, a deployer to deploy little satellites. And we ran into the guys at uh, the founders of Planet uh, Labs when they were getting going, and they really didn't have a launch opportunity then. And they had to work with the Russians, and maybe they could work with India, but that was kind of on the horizon, that was in the future. And here is the advantage of the private sector. 
So the Nanorax looks at Planet Labs and says, wait a second, we can launch your satellites from the space station. And they go, what? And remember, they're former NASA people. And, and, and they were like, what? You can do this? And so we went to NASA and we said, once again, we don't want your money. Uh, could we, if we develop our own CubeSat deployers, could we have the right to use the JAXA uh, airlock uh, under the international treaty between the Americans and the, and the Japanese? Could we use the airlock to deploy satellites? And NASA said yes. And and we went back to Planet and uh, and we signed a, a very interesting deal and uh, we deployed. I forget the number now, anywhere from 30 to 40 of uh, the, among the first of the planet's satellites. And Planet has said publicly, we brought them to market probably two years earlier than they anticipated. And I'd like to think that we very much helped create the ecosystem today because we helped Planet get launched, uh, GOMSpace get launched, uh, 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 other folks uh, in Europe get launched, Spire. Uh, get launched. And what happened next? Well, entrepreneurs came along and said, wait a second, we can do dedicated launch vehicles. And investors came along and said, wait, there's a market. There's companies like this planet and GOM space. So let's put in money. And so what happened is the governments had created the technical capabilities, but it, 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 it's the private sector, the creativity of the private sector, the imagination of the private sector that brought it all together, in this case, Nanorax. Okay, what is the market for Nanorax going forward in satellite deployment? It's twofold. I could not be more excited on the, uh, uh, how we have shown the importance of space stations, of platforms in satellite deployment. At Nanorax, we're working uh, in a number of niche areas that are getting bigger and they're critical. The first is we are getting customers who do not want to do what I call same day uh, deploy. Okay, Rocket Lab launches on a Thursday. Maybe they launch on a Thursday because it was a thunderstorm. Maybe because uh, the facilities were available. Maybe you want to launch two weeks later. And so we are getting a growing number of customers who, who say to us, let's go up to the station and let's stay on the station and let's deploy in two months. Let's deploy in four months. And so that's an extremely important emerging marketplace. I call it, uh, 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 you know, in-space deployment uh, rather than uh, launch deployment. And today, you know, more and more, you know, there's more and more opportunities for to go up, of course, with launch vehicles. It's all this competition. That's a whole nother example. But we are showing that there's some unique features of a space station. When I look five years out, good Lord. I mean, five years out, we see additive manufacturing, 3D. I see the rocket labs, the Virgin orbits. What they're going to do is they're going to bring raw materials, SpaceX. They're going to bring raw materials to space. And in space, on a platform, you will be manufacturing much of the satellite. And so the idea in five years, 10 years, that you build it on the ground and you launch it to space and it goes in that exact orbit as the vehicle, that's really going to be uh, uh, something that uh, gets disrupted. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we're working on the reuse of the second stage, the upper stage of uh, differing launch vehicles. And uh, we're, we're um, setting up an entire 
a new part of our company devoted to this, and we've been funded uh, to how do you convert uh, fuel tanks into commercial platforms. And so it's a long story, but today we, we help start this market. Uh, and today we see a niche for space stations uh, in different reasons. If you want the station orbit, if you want the photographs, uh, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that come to us because we give them the wonderful photographs and video of the satellites being deployed. Uh, it's a smoother ride up in the cargo ships because you're riding on the inside and we've taken up some very fragile satellites we've taken up satellites that the astronauts add on components once it's uh, it's on the station and we have customers that are waiting so you see there's a diverse uh, small marketplace but important and in the future it's the additive manufacturing so okay the second part of your question was the the sort of basic concept of ecosystem uh, one person's ecosystem is another person's competitive landscape. And in space, we have both, okay? And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a, the emergence of a vibrant marketplace. And so uh, let's use an example. Uh, you mentioned Airbus and Bartomeu, okay? And, and uh, that is competition to our external platform uh, at NanoRacks. Um, but I note that Airbus has our external platform on their website, okay? And uh, we've reached some agreements on cross-marketing. Also, we expect that our Bishop Airlock, which is uh, now on uh, SpaceX 21 uh, and goes up uh, before the end of the year, uh, will one of our uh, customers will be the European, we announced um, that European Space Agency is a, a customer and some of the uses for the Bartomeu payloads. And, and so we're still in a fairly what we would call immature marketplace. It is a market, but it's still immature. And we're, we're at a point where you're still, uh, uh, you, you're competing against other uh, uh, platforms and other companies, but you're also utilizing them. And, and so um, for us at Nanorax, we kind of want to be an uh, uh, operating platform or your portal. Uh, we, we want to be space station people. And so uh, we did something unique early on and we continue to be unique uh, in that I'm not interested in one segment of the marketplace. I'm interested, I want to do education. We have Dream Up. I want to do Nano Labs. That's our core uh, original core product. Uh, we do biopharma research. Uh, we will be announcing soon, uh, I'll say it here, a major program to use the environment of space for agricultural ag tech uh, innovation. I want to be in the business of providing commercial real estate in space, using our own commercial real estate in space, someone else's real estate in space, and, and being one of the customers. And then our core, what we call DNA, is helping others get to space and use it. And so we're different in that we're not a satellite constellation company. We're not a launch vehicle company. We're a space station company. And the way I explain it to people is, you know, you might have a... 10-story building, let's say, let's say in Berlin. And maybe the bottom floor, you know, has a hairdresser and a restaurant. And the next floors might have different types of businesses. A little further up will be a little different. Maybe there's a separate lobby that has some uh, residential. And yet it's the same landlord. 
And that's the way we view Nanoracks. We want to understand the market. And even if we have, you know, retail shops and we have business, so that's how we're different. But I want to understand the entire marketplace. And yes, I have competition. I have short-term competition from a whole bunch of people. Um, I have longer-term competition with China and India. And I'm not as much worried about the Western competition. I'm more worried about the uh, India and China And I wish my government would begin to negotiate with China and set rules of the road. I was there in, uh, you know, 25 years ago when uh, we sat down and we uh, negotiated rules of the road with the Russians uh, that allowed Proton to be in the marketplace. I'm hopeful in the next few years we'll do the same with China. We'll do the same with India. I welcome them into the marketplace when there's uh, rules of the road. So it's a long answer uh, saying no one likes competition, you know, but it's also at this point in time, it's an ecosystem and it's helping us. And I will use the, the chance for our listeners because uh, we have a lot of upcoming entrepreneurs in, in our community. And of course, they ask uh, themselves uh, what actually would be like the minimum cost, for example, to uh, have a project on the ISS um, through Nanorex um, and maybe to deploy a CubeSat. Um, so where is your um, entry point? So uh, on the uh, satellites, in fact, I forgot to say that uh, we've grown and we have an upcoming ride share on SpaceX. So I'll put in a commercial, we call it, for Nanorax. If you want to fly, please come to us, whether or not it's the International Space Station. Um, so we launched uh, uh, on uh, the Indian launch vehicle. We have a uh, December mission on, uh, on SpaceX doing rideshare. So we're growing in our uh, capabilities, and it's an incredibly dynamic pricing market. We are competitive. We have people in this industry that are, we call dumping, that are just going low prices to try and get market share. And, uh, you know, wonderful. It's a play. We think we'll be here for the long term and we offer a service and, and uh, whatever trustworthiness and uh, history. And so uh, come to us and, and our prices are competitive. And it can be the ISS or it could be um, uh, SpaceX or whomever. And on the others, Our lowest price for anything is $15,000 for our educational mix sticks, the kind of test tubes. And we've flown, um, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe over 140 schools around the world in, the, in North America and Israel, the UAE. We've done educational uh, programs in uh, Germany. But we can't do that anymore. We're not allowed. But anyway, I won't, I won't touch on that too much. Um, not happy that uh, DLR is putting out announcements only in German. Well, what can you do? Okay. Uh, maybe that's uh, my country's fault. I don't know whose fault, uh, where it begins. But uh, anyway, uh, so, um, uh, and please use that if you want. That's not, that's not as we say, <laughs> off the record. Uh, so, um, um, uh, and we lose money on the 15,000. We lose money on that basic product, but of course it's important to do. It's done without NASA funding. It's, it's done, uh, you know, to get schools involved. And we've actually had some schools, customers, students that are now on their second and their third uh, payloads as they've grown up. And uh, we had uh, one young woman who ended up going to Stanford, one uh, coincidentally woman who ended up going to MIT. So we think we're setting out we're, we're a whole generation of Nanorax users that are going out into the space uh, ecosystem and know us. So, you know, that's, that's it on pricing. Um, today, 
about five years ago, our revenue was about 90% International Space Station. And uh, I worked very hard. And today it's probably, while we're growing as a company, uh, it's dropped to about uh, 50%. And now a lot of our revenue is um, the next generation space stations, uh, us becoming our own customers and biopharma and ag tech research. Um, and as you grow as a uh, company, you have to diversify. It can't all be uh, in one uh, program. Well, thank you very much. I think I think that's hugely important to also spark this, uh, this new generation of, of space entrepreneurs we don't want to stress your time too much we have just one to two questions which we would be super interested in because you mentioned so many potential areas of application of your let's say platform so ranging from the development of new fiber optical materials to development of new pharmaceutical products to space tourism to so many other things and uh, we believe that during the last few years we really have seen earth observation and telecommunication as the cash cows of space and especially new space and now the next thing will be something made out of hardware uh, it will be hardware or it will at least have a very big hardware component and we were wondering if you would have to bet your money on on one of these domains which domain will be the next cash cow of new space You know, it's fascinating to ask it that way. I mean, clearly uh, uh, the two uh, biggest entrepreneurs in our business have given us the answer, and that's on the constellations, you know, uh, satellite constellations with Amazon and, uh, and Elon SpaceX going uh, with OneWeb and, and others. And by the way, one of the most interesting developments in our industry in the past 10 years is that Jeff Bezos launch is launching his satellite constellation not through blue origin but through amazon and what does that tell you it tells you it's a real business it's not a space nut doing something okay i mean amazon is a publicly traded company and with little fanfare a publicly traded company like amazon is launching one of the most ambitious space-based pro uh, projects that shows maturity and that he didn't do it through blue origin um so they've told us that the cash cow of, uh, of uh, day after tomorrow, let's say, in the short term, are these constellations. But you didn't really ask that question. You asked kind of, what's the next one? And you, and you touched on it. I believe that the next commercial uh, cash cow will be in space manufacturing. Okay, I mean, what can be done with fiber optics, uh, we're investing in using space for developing new microbes and bacteria um, uh, for plants and seeds in the harsh environment of space with uh, the strange cocktail of radiation and microgravity. I think you will see as companies are beginning to quietly develop re-entry capsules, uh, where you can bring hardware back down, you can bring material back down. I think in-space manufacturing will be huge. And the second will be infrastructure development. At Nanorax, we say this is the decade of the destination of infrastructure development, in-space transportation, in-space platforms. I think by the end of this decade, there will be a dozen small space stations. In English, we call them platforms or free flyers. And those dozen space stations will be in different orbits and different inclinations. Nations. They will build on the ecosystem of the previous decade, which is where the American government and other governments poured billions into developing a robust launch vehicle market. 
And you know what? They got to go somewhere. And so we see destinations as the next big market and how you use those destinations as they become warehouses, factories, research, hotels. That's where we're going. We'll never have a space station like the International Space Station. I don't want another station like the International Space Station. Putting modules together screws up markets. Honeymooners don't want to be in uh, in one suite where you got a government scientist listening to them in the other module. Okay, it's not the way markets develop, okay? And uh, you don't want an astronaut on a bicycle when you're doing thin film research and manufacture. So we'll never have a space station like the ISS again. In the future, those modules will be in different locations dedicated to different customers. And so that's the excitement and those are the cash cows of tomorrow. You just shared uh, like your vision of the of the commercial space market, and we just want to close the podcast with the with the last uh, question. Uh, what is motivating you to build this community in space, and what do you want to share with our listeners? I, I've been doing this for a long time, and now it, it is so exciting now because so many things that we dreamt about 25 years ago they're happening, not the exact same way. I mean, but boy, we had to live through the shuttle program and the shuttle from a commercial viewpoint was an utter uh, non-starter. Um, you couldn't plan, you couldn't build a business model on you know, one vehicle, one fragile vehicle going to and from space. For years, we had no uh, uh, space station, no destination. Um, there was one or two companies, it was like a baron being out you know, in the middle of the forest somewhere and, and oh, here's somebody working in space. What keeps me going is that it's a fascinating jigsaw puzzle. Uh, how do you get the right pieces together uh, to go the next steps? Um, the next step for me is not the moon because that's still government dominated a great deal. Okay, it's, it's exciting and it must be done, but it's not the, the next step is how do we make this a mature market in low earth orbit? How do we make sure it is international? How do we make sure it's a level playing field? What discoveries are, are, are waiting to be discovered? NASA in the uh, 80s and 90s always said, we're doing space stations to discover the cure for cancer. Never have. I think we're close. I think we're close now with miniaturization, with commercial creativity, with a robust space transportation, um, that we will start to make great discoveries in space. So it keeps me going. That's a great, that's a great ending. And I think a, a perfect quote from this podcast for all our listeners well thank you very very much for the time you gave us and for really these, these huge insights about what's currently going on in the space industry and what has has really happened during the last few decades so again thank you very much um, and um, for everyone who's out there who want to start their own space venture who want to bring something into orbit Nanorex is definitely a place thank you guys okay take care okay bye 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 Hey, New Space Visionaries, this is Nina, one of the producers of the New Space Vision podcast. You just listened to a super inspiring interview with Jeffrey Mamber, CEO of Nanorex, the world's leading supplier of commercial space station services. Jeff has been involved in several of the key commercial space projects revolving around the commercialization of space assets and the integration of the Russian space industry into major space programs, including that of the International Space Station.
Nanorex was founded in 2009 and is the first company in the world to develop, operate and market commercially its own facilities on board of the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. Next to the unique ISS satellite deployment for CubeSats and Microsats, which allows customers to decide when to deploy their satellites, Nanorex has another extremely interesting business vision. The reutilization of already in-space hardware to create so-called outposts. Nanorex sees its future in owning and operating these private space stations. For NASA, they conducted a feasibility study that revealed to be an extremely cost-efficient approach because everything is already in space. The outpost fleet will be made from spent upper stages in orbit and other structures after they have completed their primary mission. So, instead of throwing these resources away, Nanorex plans on converting them into orbiting hubs for users all over the world. The future of space commercialization is visioned as an era of commercially provided factories, warehouses, fuel depots and space stations throughout the space frontier. Markets for in-space platforms include everything from manufacturing of satellites and high-value products such as fiber optics to storage of resources from Earth and asteroids. In-space platforms are these stepping stones to deep space exploration and space hotels. Now you may ask, what is the technology involved in a project like this? And what is the projected timeline? On their website, Nanorex provides further information on the so-called Outpost program. Nanorex announced its first in-space outpost demonstration mission, in which it will be building a self-contained hosted payload platform that will demonstrate the robotic cutting of the second stage representative tank material on orbit. Never before has structural metal cutting been done in space. As a member of the outpost program team, Maxer will develop a new articulating robotic arm with a friction milling end effector for this mission. This friction milling will use high rotations per minute melting the metal material in such a way that a cut is made. The program is now targeting a June 2021 dedicated SpaceX rideshare mission, will fly on an ESPA ring and will activate after the deployment of all other secondary payload is complete. As the mission begins, it is planned to have 30 minutes to one hour to complete the cutting of the three metal pieces, which are representative of various vehicle upper stages. Nanorex plans to downlink photos and videos of the friction milling and cutting. Nanorex is still looking for partners and will be making available three units of hosted payload space on this mission. No deployables though. Specifically, they are looking for bioscience or biomedical research that can directly contribute to the understanding of the harsh environment of space on long duration journeys. They will share an official call for proposals in the coming weeks on their website. So stay tuned for this exciting project. So that's it. This was another episode of the new Space Vision podcast and it won't be the last. We have already lined up a few new interesting, inspiring guests. Stay tuned and track our activity on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and of course on our website newspacevision.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you support us by forwarding this podcast to one other person in your network that might enjoy it as well or by sharing or retweeting the podcast post on your social media profile. If you have any feedback or ideas who we should talk to in one of our upcoming episodes, feel free to message us on our social media outlets or email our podcast organizer 
nina at newspace.vision. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast.